This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Converse brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. We have now taken over your radio. Richie Guerin is about to show you the most important step in getting past a man. It's the first one. And Oscar will inbound it. The men in green, the Milwaukee Bucks, that's Al Cinder against Bellamy. Hello and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA podcast at harborparoxism.com. I am Jason Mann. Uh, my u- usual co-host Rich is out getting married, so uh, today I am alone, but we have a tremendous guest. Uh, he is the author of King of the Court, Bill Russell and the Basketball Revolution, Dr. Aram Gutsuzian. Uh Aram, um, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jason. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I, I just, first of all, I want to say, you know, what, is, what a fantastic book you have written about uh, Russell's career. It just, it's, it's such um, it's such an amazing synthesis of his basketball career, his activism, uh, just so many, I can tell just uh, that you um, spent a lot of time researching, and it's, it's, it's beautifully written and beautifully researched, and we really appreciate it as a resource for um, learning about Russell and for us doing our WrestleMania series. I appreciate that very much. It was uh, as fun a book to research and write as you can imagine. Uh, you know, just dealing with the subject material and the fascinating figure of Russell himself, and 
getting to pour through old newspapers and magazines about basketball's history. It was it was just a, it was a fun project and one I look back on really fondly. Yeah, what um you know what what made you want to write a book about Russell, who you know of course has has written uh, a couple of memoirs and you know other books have been written about him. What were you trying to learn about? What were you trying to unpack about um, Russell by writing the book? I'd say from the beginning that I was intimidated by writing about Russell because I loved Second Wind so much, uh, his memoir that was published in 1980. It was one of the first basketball books I ever read. I read it as a kid, just remember being swept up in it and uh, feeling a sense of that it was about so much more than basketball, which of course it is. I think it's really one of the best sports memoirs ever written. Uh, but then later in my life when I was uh, training to be a historian and I, I was writing about race and culture, my first book was about uh, Sidney Poitier, the actor. Uh, but I'd written a lot about sport. Really, my interest in sports history was what made me an academic historian because it had been so central to my understanding of American life, American culture, even American politics. Uh, and increasingly, I got interested in African-American history. So Russell was kind of a natural figure for me in that way. But I should say also that I'd originally planned this book as a, as a history of the rivalry between uh, Russell and, and Will Chamberlain. And I'd, uh, done, I'd done a significant amount of research into Will Chamberlain's life and career, too, I'd spent about a year and a half just in the research process on both of them. And then literally about the week that I was going to start writing this book, I heard about uh, John Taylor's book called The Rivalry. <laughs> Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain, and the yeah. Golden Age of Basketball. <laughs> so that shifted my plan. Right. Uh, but ultimately, I owe uh, Mr. Taylor a debt of gratitude because I think if I'd started to write that book, it would have been 800 pages, and I'm not really sure how I would have honed it down. Writing about Russell actually gave it a, a sharper focus uh, and made it more – central to what I was trying to do as a historian. Yes, and, and there are very good details about um, Russell and Chamberlain's rivalry in your uh, book as well. The rivalry is also another wonderful uh, book that, um, uh, as well. Um, looking at Russell, his his upbringing, he is, um, he's a, uh, grows up in, um, lives in Louisiana until he's about now in, in rural Louisiana in a very, um, very, very segregated area of the South and um, deals with a lot of um, hostility from whites. His parents both are involved in you know very specific, scary incidents of um, uh, dealing with uh, racism in the community. Uh, eventually, his father sort of um, lo- looks for work and settles in um, near Oakland, California, where the family eventually moves, he and his brother and his mother. Um, then his mother dies when he is uh, 12 years old. There's a, um, uh, there is a, uh, the, usual the custom at the time, the family would sort of take care of the um, uh, children and the father would sort of go off on his own. But um, his father, who he called Mr. Charlie, wanted to it, it had keep the family together. I believe his mother had... Um, made him promise to do that, and then he's raised by his brother until um, adulthood. And uh, what do you think about the, you know, what were some of the key events of Russell's upbringing that sort of shaped his attitudes and personality? Well, I think one very important thing is the role of uh, of gender and about his uh, father and his mother. Uh, Because his mother died when he was young, and because his mother was really his uh, source of emotional warmth, uh, and he was a sensitive kid growing up, and he was some, somewhat awkward as a child. He wasn't sort of the big man on campus when he was a kid. Uh, and he just really admired his mother, and, and he was someone who he could just sort of go to and rely on. And, and uh, yeah, as you might imagine, for anyone, uh, if their mother died when they were young, it would be traumatic. I would say it was probably particularly so for Russell. And for the rest of his life, he sort of craved that sort of sense of 
personal connection and meaning. He was always sort of in a search. And I think that's very much connected to the passing of his mother when he was at an early age. But intimately connected to that is, as you alluded to, you know, in uh, tradition, particularly in, in the African-American tradition, because of the role of the extended family in kid networks, which really go back to the era of slavery and the, and the need for that because families were broken up all the time. You know, an extended family would just assume to take care of a child in Bill Russell's circumstance in the early 1940s when his mom passed. Uh, but uh, Russell's father really insisted upon uh, raising the, uh, Bill and his brother himself. And so he grew up in this very unique all-male household where he, you know, he relied upon the circle of men. And his father was such an independent, headstrong, uh, uh, providing man uh, that provided this model of manhood. Uh, and manhood would be a theme that the Bill Russell would return to again and again in his life in terms of describing his decisions, both on a personal level and on a political level. When he described his various impulses to get into political activity, he did so in the language of manhood. I wouldn't be a man if I didn't do this. So I think that is one extremely significant way to understand Russell's personality is through his relationships to his parents and how each provided a model for him. And he had a very, just a, a very, as you mentioned, he was he was very sensitive even throughout his life. I mean, he he sort of had mm-hmm. the, the temperament of an artist in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he was he was very very smart, but but very, um, you, you know, he he definitely saw slights. I, I mean, um, obviously dealt with many slights in his life, but um, would um, you know was driven by them to a certain extent. Um, you know, one key is that um, he read a lot of books when he was a kid. I mean, he very much was uh, was in the library all the time, and uh, as you mentioned, was sort of withdrawn a little bit um, in himself. And um, he read a, a, a history book that basically said that um, while slavery was bad, slaves still enjoyed a higher standing of living in America than in Africa. And he was just, um, you know, repulsed by this idea mm-hmm. that a history book would say this and that. Um, you know that that this was that somehow that this could you know be considered possible by anything that really kind of informed um you know just a um in an anger that he felt about um how that you know the the white supremacy in society and how it um what he was battling against for um you know for the rest of his career and the rest of his life Mm-hmm. Yeah, he lived, you know, growing up in Louisiana, he lived obviously in a very openly segregationist, white supremacist society uh, where the police would harass his mother for dressing too, uh, in too fancy a way once, and where his father would be, uh, they would try to intimidate him if he, if he would try to assert any authority. Um, so there are all sorts of ways in which, you know, he very much lived in a, in a very repressive racial regime in Louisiana. But he also saw a race not as, you know, purely Southern phenomenon. I mean, he uh, in, in Oakland, uh, uh, he attended a school that was becoming rapidly all black for the most part, one that had been historically integrated and, and living in a neighborhood that was increasingly segregated and facing harassment from the police uh, and sort of a spatial segregation and, and all the sort of things that we associate with the urban crisis of, of, of a later era he's experiencing in the 1940s in Oakland growing up. Um, you know, this is the city that will birth the Black Panthers in 1966. These are sort of connected urban issues. So, yeah, race frames his experience, not entirely, but he doesn't simply define himself as an African-American person, but it is obviously central to his identity, uh, and it is uh, both a uh, source of pride, of course, uh, but also a, uh, a fuel for him, I think, as he, uh, as he embarks on an athletic career. Yeah. Another um, 
unique thing about him is how he was able to kind of develop his game uh, mentally and physically um, after high school and going into uh, the University of San Francisco because he, he was not a, a standout high school player. Uh, he sort of ends up on an all-star tour because of um, uh, just by luck almost. And uh, and then suddenly he sort of has an, an, an epiphany where he understands that he can see the game in a way that almost no one can and he can sort of mentally copy moves of other players and emulate them and then even even more so he's able to mentally copy sort of counters to their moves and understand how he can be um an effective uh defender and he really um that that sort of becomes obviously the calling card of his game of under of being able to um be such a tremendous defender um all over the floor and um and, and you know is the sort of the initial thing um that he goes but i i really think that um that ability to sort of just uh use his imagination and use his intelligence to be able to just sort of develop um his game um outside of the court really is something that um almost no one else seem could possibly seem to have that gift I and mean, I think that really is kind of a thing that makes him uh special right and i think in our discussion about his upbringing i think that's central you know i think for most athletes who would play who would end up playing a professional sport they were generally one of the best athletes growing up right uh and so that shaped how they respond to their sport and so on uh for russell because he was not the best because he was as had as much the temperament of an artist as you said or an intellectual that the game kind of existed in his mind before it existed on the court uh, so uh that that sense of imagination, his obsession with visual culture, with art, uh, and his sense of history, these were all things that kind of informed how he viewed basketball. He started to think about patterns. He started to think about uh, the game as an intellectual pursuit before he did as a physical pursuit. Almost. Uh, and so for him to do what he did on the court in terms of thinking about, for instance, how to leap to block shots, that's that was went against the conventional wisdom of the time, you know, all the coaching manuals of the 1940s tells you you know, never jump to, uh, to block a shot because what you're going to do is you're going to you know is you're going to let your man cut uh, fake and go past you for a layup. Uh, but he's seeing a changing game and he's seeing uh, how he can use his instincts and he's seeing how he can study the game uh, and it really changes how the game is played once you start leaping to block shots and, and you're successful at it it changes the entire pattern of what goes on on the court. Yeah, I mean, in a second when he talks about how you know no one really thought of the block shot as much def- def- as much of a defensive weapon. In fact. Nobody thought much about defense at all. It was kind of a time where he really rested while, you know, the offense uh, happened. And, and that was also, you know, during a time in which it was just harder naturally to score because, uh, you know, the jump shot hadn't been in vogue yet. And it was just, uh, you know, the, the kind of the rules of the game where scoring was rare enough where the the value of defense wasn't necessarily seen. And as the um, scoring became easier in the pro, gra- pro game, uh, Russell's defense became, you know, even more uh, valuable um, because it was it was suddenly you know extremely needed to be able to uh, stop uh, the other team, um, and also you know developing his game at the uh, University of San Francisco. Um, he uh, he studied it a lot with uh, his roommate Casey Jones, who of course would later become his um, his Celtics teammate, and really um, you know was almost a. Um, 
you know, a, a perfect person for um, for Russell to, to to spend a lot of time with because they both just had the ability and interest in uh, basketball to just go on for hours and hours discussing different aspects of it and learning from each other and you know learning from um, you know different things they they saw and were doing on the court. It was really uh, you, you know a great kinship between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so, and. And in some ways, Casey Jones provided that, again, that sense of uh, male companionship and sort of a sense of being part of a unit. Uh, in those early years at USF, uh, Russell felt, you know, was, mostly, uh, was mostly a white team, and they kind of looked down on him and tried to mock him. And he didn't feel like he was part of a real team, and, that, and there was, so there was a sense of alienation. But he built that culture with Casey Jones, with Hal Perry, who another outstanding African-American player who was joining them at San Francisco. Uh, and, and then a few others, and then they really built that culture with the white players on their team by his junior and senior year when the team was so outstanding. Um, and, yeah, for him and Jones, it was it's one of those understated partnerships in American sports history. You know, these are, these are two people who together won two NCAA titles, an Olympic championship, uh, and then uh, nine of Russell's 11 NBA titles were won alongside Casey Jones. Um, and Casey is his mentor early on. He, he helps uh, he helps shape him. He helps him sort of develop his ideas about what to, about how the game should be approached. Without Casey Jones, to some degree, there's no Bill Russell. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and also, this is sort of as um, USF is successful. Russell is first getting uh, in the national spotlight, and um, and there's sort of a mix of how he is seen and perceived. Um, you know, he, he's definitely he, he's he's covered, but he's also covered still in these um, these sort of narrow boxes that African American players were going to be um, put in during this time. I mean, he's, he's he's praised for his humility, but also sort of um, pigeonholed in profiles in Time Magazine and, and Sports Illustrated that sort of kind of make make him seem like a happy go lucky black stereotype. And um, on the other hand, there were also um, especially with some of the um, black newspapers at the time, trumpeting his accomplishments, sort of him embodying him and the team as sort of a liberal uh, optimism about cooperation between blacks and whites. whites. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a, um, you know, he's, he's sort of been being framed in um, these different ways. And then as he establishes himself, he starts to push back on how he's perceived and starts to speak out and starts to um, – uh, break barriers between how um, black players are viewed, b- b- between how um, blacks are uh, viewed in general, and, and starts to sort of kind of be a revolutionary force in uh, a lot of those ways through both his play and through um, you know, his exploits off the court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, if you want to think in just historical terms, uh, the black athlete historically has fallen into sort of one of two camps in terms of his image. Right? There's the outlaw uh, that was embodied by Jack Johnson, uh, the boxer at the turn of the century, who flaunted uh, white expectations of what black people should be and uh, smoked and gambled and slept with white women and, and beat up on uh, on whites. And then on the other hand, there's the sort of the humble hero, the, what was known at the time as the good Negro. Uh, this would be a Joe Lewis or a Jesse Owens or the image that people tried to impose upon Jackie Robinson in his early career where they're humble and married and uh, uh, restrained and the public statements are simply about sort of you know, racial brotherhood, and, and, and uh, uh, there's a certain you know, sort of satisfying white liberal expectations of what of what a black person should be. Uh, and you see those that those attempts to jam Russell into those boxes in the mid 1950s when he's uh, rising up with um, with San Francisco and then playing in the Olympics and then joining the Celtics. And to some degree, that's 
you know, Russell's statements mirror that sometimes that he, uh, you know, he uses that, that sort of idealistic language sometimes, and he's a product of his time. And this is, as you might imagine, this is the era when the Brown v. Board of Education decision has just come down, and it's just uh, Martin Luther King is just arriving on the scene with the Montgomery bus boycott. So it's still very early in the civil rights movement. So that idealism and that sense of, you know, don't mess things up for other black people is very much on the minds of a lot of these black public figures like Russell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't really capture him as a human being, uh, both in terms of, you know, those close to him in San Francisco, both spoke to his intensity and his pride and his warmth, but also people thought he was a jerk. Uh, you know, he had a, he had a sort of rough edges to him on, on, a, on a personal level, and it was difficult for some people to reconcile those things. He's a very complex figure, ultimately. Um, and those don't fit into easy boxes. And that's kind of when he, by his early career with the Celtics, he's really trying to establish, establish himself outside of these stereotypes and trying to be considered as a unique individual. It's a very unique and interesting story for how a black athlete is trying to project himself at that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing that I that, that probably isn't that well understood um, today, and, and I didn't really know that much about it until um, going into this project, but um, the fact that Russell... Um, rejected the Harlem Globetrotters and and went to the Celtics, and it in itself was a you know a, a pioneering thing. I mean, basically, um, you know, there there had been some integration into the NBA, but it was very limited um, by '56, and um, you know, he he basically didn't like the Globetrotters because they very much were. Um, a you know they, they were they were a show and they were comic entertainment and they really um uh, spread a lot of um unsavory um black stereotypes um during that time and they also were kind of you know they were um such a powerhouse that the NBA was reluctant to integrate further to um to to not upset uh, Abe Saperstein and you know Russell um you know rejecting them trying trying to erase the barrier he said I wanted to open up basketball so there would be no limits for the black player was um you know a, a way of paving the way for other black superstars to soon um join the NBA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really Russell's decision kind of helps seal the fate of what the Harlem Globetrotters are going to be because still in that era uh, the Globetrotters are a, a more powerful box office draw. The NBA often depended upon staging doubleheaders with the Globetrotters where the Globetrotters would play the first game and then the NBA team would play the second game and the Globetrotters were the more significant draw in, in these situations. Uh, moreover, you could argue that until 1956 the Globetrotters are the more are still considered the natural or premier outlet for a talented black basketball player. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no real black superstars who've, who've integrated into the NBA, uh, with the possible exception of Maurice Stokes who, around that time, but he is emerging from uh, a small college and, and relative obscurity when he becomes a star with the Cincinnati Reds. Um, but Russell is well known as a star going into the NBA rather than uh, uh, playing with the Globetrotters. And you know, now our modern perspective, we all tend to think of the Globetrotters as of that era, especially as sort of satisfying uh, black clown stereotypes and so on. But it's important to recognize that the State Department was sponsoring Globetrotter tours and projecting them as sort of ambassadors of American goodwill. Uh, So at that time, there were those who saw the Globetrotters as doing good for black America, too. So Russell's decision places them into a more newer, more modern black political tradition uh, in terms of rejecting those stereotypes. It is not what everyone would have done or would have expected a black superstar to do in 1956. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and now, I mean, Russell, just a lot of um, as he develops as a player, as Boston is winning more championships and is, uh, you know, has a, a stronghold on the NBA, the NBA is becoming more integrated. Um, but, you know, Russell really does start speaking out in the early 60s. Um, he was the first, uh, to really speak out against, um, NBA quotas of, um, black players. Uh, basically at, at that time, unofficially, there were, most teams had, um, no more than three players who were, who were black. I think the Celtics being the only, uh, exception to that and, um, uh, speaking out about, um, speaking out against that and also, um, starting to speak out in a way that, um, alienated the public to uh, a certain extent of talking about how he felt uh, unappreciated speaking out about some of the um, the racist attitudes in Boston and he would deal with a lot of um, you know vandalism of his home and um, and, and and things like that he also um, decided uh, to uh, to not sign autographs which is an, another um, thing that um, Certainly, fans didn't didn't quite understand, and um, and another way in which he sort of broke the mold is in terms of like he doesn't want to, um, you know, he he doesn't want to be a. Um, I, I think his quote is, "I'm a man. If I have to be a boy to be popular, then I don't want popularity." Uh, in terms of you know speaking out against some some of these things or acting in ways that he felt like were demeaning to him or were um, just like. In not meaningful interactions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think there's a number of ways to think about how Russell is sort of emerging on the public scene in the starting in the late 50s and certainly by the early to mid 1960s as a, sort of a voice, a critic of uh, of established patterns in race and sport. Um, you see this even through something like in in 1958, he does his profile for Sports Illustrated. And when she talks about how he just doesn't want to satisfy stereotypes, he's like, I just want to be considered as an individual. So, for instance, he uh, didn't buy a Cadillac uh, because he thought you know, that would satisfy the stereotype of every black guy who gets rich to buy a Cadillac. Uh, and then he and he sort of tried to paint sort of a more complex uh, stance on his politics that he's not just a traditional liberal, that he's not some fire-breathing radical, but he sort of can encompass both of those traditions. Um, in terms of thinking about uh, what he and other black players see in terms of race on the court. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, early in his career, uh, like the year that he that he enters the NBA, 56-57, I think 15 African Americans played in the NBA that year. You know, some were mainstays on teams, some were just had brief stints. So uh, the the St. Louis Hawks won the title the next year. They were the last all-white champion uh, in NBA history. So there were still, you know, uh, blacks were relatively minor on teams by by around 1960. No team really has more than three blacks. Uh, when those Celtics draft Benny Swain. I think it's in 59 or 60, uh, someone says, oh, they won't keep four blacks on the team. They already had three. And the Celtics are the first to do so. Uh, by 63, 64, every team has either four or five blacks. No more, no less. Um, and uh, none who, who ride the end of the bench. If you're going to have black people on your team, they're going to play. Um, those last spots seem to be reserved for veteran whites or what have you. Uh, and, you know, the black players see this and they recognize it. They know that there are racial patterns. But no one ever is, is really articulating that in the early 60s until Russell does. He starts to give these interviews to Sports Illustrated, Saturday Evening Post, where he talks about that hypocrisy. 
Um, and every black player in the NBA knows it. Most black fans in the NBA who follow the NBA know it. Uh, most whites choose to ignore it because they think of black people as public figures who just simply want to point out the positives because that's the established pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, they kind of have to listen to, to Bill Russell. By 1964, he's won, what is it, six titles in seven years or seven titles in eight years. Um, and he's done so playing with not just Satch Sanders and Casey Jones, Sam Jones and other black players, but with Bob Cousy, Bill Sharman, Frank Ramsey, who all sing his praises, right? All these white players who, who, who love playing with Russell and, and who think he's great. Uh, and so the Celtics are becoming, as the civil rights movement is heating up in the early 60s, basketball's shining example of racial cooperation. And reporters are noting it. People in Boston are noting it. So this is a guy who has certain bona fides in terms of saying, in terms of being able to speak on race. He's, this isn't someone out of the mainstream. He's not a, he's not a radical in the, in the eyes of whites. Mm-hmm. And yet here he is saying things that would be perceived as radical coming out of other people's mouths. Yeah. And, um, you know, he really stepped out in, um, in the civil rights movement as well. He was there, um, at the, uh, the March on Washington, uh, along with Elgin Baylor, Wilt Chamberlain, um, and, uh, Walt Bellamy, I believe. And, um, actually met with Martin Luther King Jr. there um, before the march. And also he uh, went to Mississippi in uh, 1964 during the uh, Freedom Summer, despite having a lot of uh, reticence in doing so, because, but he'd, he'd promised, to, um, he'd promised uh, Charles Evers that he would uh, go out there to uh, help out. And, um, and despite the anxiety um, that he had in doing so it really was something that uh you know people there felt was a you know a galvanizing moment to to see someone of his stature uh participate firsthand there and he um did some uh you know he he did some speaking there and and did some um basketball drills and that sort of thing and really was um you know an important a small but an important um step for him to um step forward in that way as well yeah, yeah. Um, so something like the March on Washington, there were a number of black public figures there, and, sure. and that Russell was was among them is perhaps not a surprise. Yeah. But when you think about visiting Freedom Summer in 1964, just for the context, that is an exceptionally dangerous situation to put yourself into if you are six feet ten inches black with wearing with a goatee yes. in the midst of this uh, time of ex- exceptionally heightened tensions in Mississippi yes. over race because you've got this huge army of volunteers who are coming down in Mississippi, college students trying to register voters. So, you know, white Mississippi is sort of on uh, on guard throughout this time. Yes. And uh, just the instances of racial harassment. This is the summer, of course, three civil rights workers are murdered by uh, members of, of law enforcement and the Ku Klux Klan in, in Neshoba County in, in Mississippi. Uh, and he's coming after those murders. So it's, he's definitely coming into an exceptionally tense situation. There's, and, not an, uh, there's not an athlete before Russell who really puts himself on the front lines of the civil rights movement like this. As far as I, as far as I can think of. Yeah, and it's also worth noting that Russell was a little bit. He was sort of skeptical about the um, the nonviolent aspect of um, you know the civil rights movement, and uh, but he felt that you know because he was invited under this pretext that he had to go along with that, and and it just added to the um, uh, to the anxiety of um, of him going down there. But um, yeah, he's, and he's he's defending Malcolm X in the, in the same time period. Yeah, right. Uh, there's no again. There's no other mainstream black athlete is doing this. Uh, you know, obviously Muhammad Ali will convert to the nation of Islam around the same time. Uh, and that will change a whole conversation. But, but Russell's talking about it in terms of the average black guy in America, see some value in the, in the, in the nation of Islam, which is, which is probably true. Even you know, for most people who weren't 
black nationalists who, who weren't members of the Nation of Islam, they still appreciated Malcolm X's fearlessness and the way that he was pointing out America's racial hypocrisies, but there weren't black black public figures who were stating this in the way that Russell was. Right, right. Yeah, and and um, and later he would be, you know, very supportive of uh, Muhammad Ali refusing military service, and mm-hmm. um, even even wrote an SI article saying that you know he, he believed he was standing on principle, and that it was not something where you, you know there there was a lot of um, outcry at first. I mean, it, it's sort of popular now to. Uh, have supported Muhammad Ali's stance um, in, in, in modern times, but but then of course it was very uh, divisive. There were a, a, a lot of people who thought thought that you know um, Ali was going too far or being a coward or uh, or what have you. But you know he was uh, Russell was backing him up. He was uh, you know speaking out against Vietnam you know fairly early on before that became you know a uh, a, a large scale movement. And also he was very. Um, outspoken about um uh, integrating um boston schools and mm-hmm. um you know opposing the uh, movement to uh i guess opposing the resistance toward uh, integrating them and uh which was you know a a very fierce fight in boston you know even in into the um the late 70s and and beyond and um he, he has a quote that I, I think is very telling um talking about it's his uh, there's a fire here in Roxbury. Nobody's listening, and that fire, and the fire that consumes Roxbury, will also consume Boston. The fire will spread, and of course, that you know presaged a lot of the um, the violent resistance um, that occurred in you know again moving into the late 70s, early 80s. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in terms of thinking about Boston, he is you know he's a member of the NAACP there, which we consider, of course, like the most traditional of the civil rights organizations. But it's the NAACP that's launching the fight for school integration. That helps to get a law passed in 1965 in the Massachusetts state legislature that, uh, that calls for the integrating of schools and provides a mechanism to do so. But it keeps getting resisted by the school board. Um, and so Russell is a big, goes on the front lines of demonstrations to try to do this. Uh, that's that quote that you mentioned about uh, the fire burning here in Roxbury. He gives that at what was known as a, uh, it was called a freedom graduation in 1966. There was a junior high where um, the head of the school board uh uh, who's one of the architects of, of slowing down this integration. Uh, her name was Louise Day Hicks. She was from South Boston. Um, they sort of booed her off the stage and, uh, at the official graduation because she was supposed to speak, and it ended up turning into a situation where they had to cancel. So they held this other graduation and invited Russell to come speak. Um, and that sort of gave you that sense of that voice of black Boston. He was, you know, he was certainly the most prominent spokesman for uh, an early critic of what was going on in the schools and bringing attention to it, of what was originally really just a grassroots movement. And, you know, by the time the Boston busing crisis breaks in the early 70s, uh, by then he's coaching uh, the Seattle Supersonics and he's, you know, he's not connected to Boston directly anymore. But he says, you know, I was saying this stuff 10 years ago. Like, no one was listening. Now look look at what the fruit that's that's been born. Yeah, absolutely. Um, He, um, can you think of anything else that stands out as far as, um, you know, instances of activism in, in his life or during this time that, um, that that stood out to you as ones that are, that are, you know, might be interesting or less known or, you know, uh, along those lines? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you, well, you mentioned you know, his participation in what was called the Ali Summit when Jim Brown got together 10 athletes uh, to sort of listen to Muhammad Ali and his decision to, uh, uh, to avoid induction into the Vietnam War. Um, and then they gave press conferences and so on. But it was Russell who wrote that article in Sports Illustrated uh, that really tried to explain Ali's point of view to a broader audience. So he sort of became a translator, so to speak, of, of this. Mm-hmm. And he basically 
guy who's being true to his principles. He's the one sacrificing. He's the one losing everything through this. So why do we think that he's got something to gain by uh, by taking the stand? Um, so he becomes sort of a this bridge between liberals and radicals, so to speak, in terms of trying to understand the black experience, particularly by the late 60s. And then when uh, when Martin Luther King is assassinated the next year, it's in the midst of the NBA playoffs. In April, it happens on April 4, 1968. Um, and, you know, Russell attends the funeral in, in Atlanta and so on. But he's also, when he gives interviews about it, tries to kind of explain the larger frustrations of black America in a way that white America can understand. Like something along the lines of, you know, I used to just be dismissed as an angry, angry Negro talking about these issues. But now they're sort of, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost, so to speak. Uh, and he talked about how, you know, you always are always asking me about race. How come no one ever asked John Havlicek about race? You know, there are ways in which we can have a, a more genuine dialogue um, uh, in terms of thinking about uh, black and white issues. And he says, you know, he sort of points to basketball both as a model for um, ways that people can interact with each other, but he also is very uh, careful to not use sport as simply saying, sure, look, this is an example of people getting along and thus it can be applied. Mm-hmm. Easily, right? But that it's not—it's not a solution to America's racial problem. Yeah. So it's—it's he, he, it's almost like he's you know, his power comes in how he can explain an issue and into how he can give it context in ways that people across the political divide can can understand. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because uh, sometimes he felt that you know basketball was it was very shallow that he wasn't really. You know, doing anything, he he said, this is without depth. This is a very shallow thing. Just feeling like um, both the game and sort of the culture surrounding the game, the way that uh, you know fans interacted with athletes, um, he 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 wished he could have been in a more uh, constructive profession. Of course, you know, obviously the him being a great basketball player gave him a platform to um, be able to actually do constructive things, but. Um, but 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 that was sort of something that he wrestled with as a player, feeling like, you know, I'm not really doing anything of consequence. You know, is what I'm does what I'm doing have meaning? He definitely battled with that, um, you know, throughout his career. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, this is the same guy who would get so nervous before a basketball game that he would that he would vomit and that he would, uh, uh, you know, shake sometimes before a game. And he invented these illnesses in his head ten minutes before a game. Uh, and so he he was the same person who would fret that he had that. The, you know, that his life had no meaning, that his career you know, had nothing to do with the serious issues of the day, was the same person who would sometimes invest what was going on on the court with the highest possible meanings and would speak about it that way t- at times too. You know, he was sort of legendary for the uh, speech he would give at the closing banquet after their championships where he would just be talking to his teammates and where he would sort of uh, talk about, you know, uh, what what their relationships meant to him. Um so it was something he struggled with all the time, and, and you know we started this conversation talking about his early childhood and sort of his search for for meaning, right? His search for uh, community, uh, and sport was both a way to express that and to, and to find solace, but it was also it heightened his uh, anxiety about the larger about the larger community, about the larger society. And um, I, you know. Talking about like some of the things that um, you know, he sort of rejected uh, some of the, uh, the 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 trappings of like celebrating of sport. Like he, um, you know, he he stopped giving autographs because he felt that they were sort of a um, they 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 were sort of like a um, interaction that was you know wasn't meaningful. It was just you know 
me handing somebody, you know, him handing someone his, uh, signing a paper without there even being eye contact or there being even like a, um, you know, a connection being forged. And he resented the obligation of it. And he also resented the, um, he, he did not want to be put into the Hall of Fame and um, his initial number retirement, he refused to do it. Um, at first, he, he didn't want it to have anything to do with it. And when the uh, team finally insisted, he only agreed to do it as if the actual um, raising of the number was done, you know, b- before the game with just his teammates and um, and Red Auerbach there. And then later they had a you know, a small public show, which he really refused to um, uh, acknowledge in any way. And um, can you talk a little bit more about uh, about some of those things? Yeah, sure. I think if there's any thread that runs through all three of those decisions, the decision to stop signing autographs in the 1960s, the decision, I think it's 72 or 73, when he decides not to uh, – uh, allow a traditional uh, number retirement ceremony at Boston Garden, and then 75 when he refuses to attend his induction at the in the Basketball Hall of Fame. If there's one thread that runs through all of them, I think it's this resistance to being a commodity, a resistance to being just an image, uh, and that's particularly salient for an African American person. You don't if you're a commodity, that means you're bought and sold, that means you're consumed, right? Uh, and that goes back to you know, a resistance to slavery. That uh, he doesn't want to be just put into one box in that way. Uh, and you talked sort of about how an, you know signing an autograph was sort of a dehumanizing experience for him, right? That it didn't it didn't forge a connection to the other person. In fact, it created made him feel like he was just something to be consumed, right? Something to be gawked at, admired, loved. Uh, um, and that that was part of what was he was so resistant to. Um, and so the same thing when, you know, if he accepts, in his mind, if he accepts uh, the number of retirement, if he accepts the hall, of, uh, the hall of Fame, that means that he associates with things that he's uncomfortable associating with. He was he thought the Hall of Fame had been racist in terms of how it had selected some of its uh, members of its initial class. Uh, he didn't want to be associated with, with people like Adolph Rupp, uh, uh, the coach from Kentucky, who, was, who he didn't like and thought of as a racist person. Uh, but it also meant that he was accepting a certain kind of public celebration, uh, and if he had, and if, in his mind, if he had every time that he was vilified, every time that he was booed, every time that he was uh, called a radical, every time that he got hate mail, if he accepted that, then he had to accept the cheers too, and he didn't want to accept either. He wanted to sort of create a shell between the public and the private. Yeah, and it was the same thing in terms of his personal interactions with people. I mean. Lots of people, sports fans in Boston and that era, are lots. You know, as I wrote this book, I heard the story again and again where people are like, "Oh, I saw Bill Russell in an airport, and I went to say hi to him, and he just shrugged me off, <laughs> like he, he just dismissed me, like I didn't exist." Right? Uh, that's a that's a very consistent story. He built the shell in public uh, so that he didn't have to have any meaningful interactions outside of that. But for those who knew him, once he built his trust, he would bear a soul to you. Right? The, the, so it was very much a uh, a very sharp divide between his public and his private self. Yeah. Um, so after his, uh, basketball career, he, uh, he, he basically leaves his family behind and, uh, heads out to Hollywood, uh, sort of attempts to get, uh, a career in acting going. He, um, he develops a closer friendship with, uh, Jim Brown, the, the football star who, um, who, an activist who also, um, was do, sort of doing a similar thing at the time, um, 
you know, kind of what did he sort of get involved in in um, in those years? And, um, you, you know, what was um, you, you, it seems like he was trying to kind of get away from his past life um, mm-hmm. and, and forge this new thing. Um, why do you think that was in, important to him and were some of the interesting things that he got into during that time? Well, I think part of it is that basketball has drained him. He can't uh, he can no longer get himself up for the games the way they could before. And, and physically, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot harder than it used to be by his last year in 1969. So his um, part of that is that he's just searching for something new, and, and there's a model there by from his friend Jim Brown that he decides to follow. Uh, but acting doesn't really work out for him. He has bit parts here and there, but really the, the roles for black actors at that time are either sort of uh, there's the, uh, a new sort of like a macho hero in, in the black exploitation films that are going to come out, or you're playing a, a more comic character, and he doesn't really fit easily into either of those boxes. But what what he does end up really having a talent for is uh, uh, being going on the talk show circuit, you know, appearing on The Tonight Show and, uh, and, and all these various talk shows. And then he ultimately hosts his own uh, uh, television talk show for a while and then, and then becomes a radio host. And he's excellent at this, actually, because he's really good at conversation. Uh, and, he's, and he's curious about people, and he's willing to talk to anyone. Like he, among the people he interviews on his TV show are George Wallace, the uh, governor from Alabama, who's a segregationist. Uh, you know, as couldn't be any further... Uh, apart from him on, on, the, on the political spectrum. Um, and there's a certain thing about Russell in the early, by the early 70s. Like this is an era when sort of pro sports is going through a real commercial boom and a lot of athletes are, are entering into the public arena in ways that they've never had before in terms of commercials and movies and TV and all that. But there's also this sense of, of that the sport is, and there's a lot more money is surged into pro sports by the early 70s. Uh, and yet, so Russell's able to sort of enter that world, but he's also perceived as being more authentic and real because of all the stands he took in the 1960s, because he's associated with sort of being a person, you know, you know, holding on to his individuality and, and holding on to his uh, sense of self um, in his earlier life. So that when he endorses a product, it has a real pull among consumers because they think that he actually endorses that product, uh, that it's not seen as fake or plastic. So he has a certain level of authenticity that a lot of people are craving in the 1970s, you know, this, the me decade, this time of sort of plasticity. And, and Russell seems like a real person uh, amidst this, but he's still in that celebrity culture. Yeah. And he's also gets involved in some TV uh, sports uh, commentary, especially in the uh, the late 70s and in, into the mm-hmm. early 80s. Um, he's in a, a, a famous uh, AT&T uh, commercial that uh, was was pretty well known at the time, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So he did this commercial. Uh, with a friend of his, whose name is escaping me right now, but he was a, 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 a white guy who played for the Celtics very briefly uh, in the mid-60s. But they became friends. They had sort of a similar sense of humor and just hit it off. And so the, the AT&T ads were about the two of them and their friendship and how they kept, it, how they kept in touch through long-distance calls. And people kind of couldn't, like, people were calling AT&T or writing letters to Russell saying, like, is this real? Is this guy actually your friend? Because their image of Russell was as this angry black man, uh, when in fact he was a guy who, you know, was in terms of his personal life, had all sorts of connections uh, and personal affections for, for people across the racial divide. Um, and you mentioned his, his sports casting. For people of a certain age, or right about my age, uh, they think of Russell as a terrible sports broadcaster because by the 1980s he was still doing it uh, but was uh, not very good at it. He was just sort of, he would cackle here and there. He would yeah. just throw in a comment here and there, but he wasn't really engaged in it. Kind of funny. when he started his, uh, his uh, career as a sports broadcaster in the early 70s, he was excellent at it because he was one of the few who would actually be honest about it 
uh, about what was going on. So if, if, if he saw someone who wasn't trying, he, he would say that. If he saw, if he saw someone make a, uh, a dumb mistake, he would say it. Uh, and people, again, that was speaking to that authenticity, right? He was, uh, he didn't want to exist in the realm of cliche. Uh, and so he was a very um, admired TV broadcaster when he first started. So in the uh, in the mid seventies, he uh, becomes the coach and general manager of the uh, Seattle SuperSonics, uh, in, mm-hmm. who had been an expansion team in the late sixties. Uh, were had gone through a lot of um, different coaches and different regimes already. Uh, Sam Schulman, the owner of the Sonics, was notoriously impatient. He finally made uh, approach Russell, and uh, Russell was reluctant, but finally made an offer he couldn't refuse and he uh accepted there was sort of brought in as uh the disciplinarian the 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 savior of the franchise was given sort of a uh a, a central role in that and um he did sort of help them lead them back to uh respectability they had a couple of playoff appearances and, and they were certainly an okay team but it was definitely um a a situation where it seemed like um you, you know the being a coach and GM didn't necessarily play to all of his strengths. Um, and there were definitely conflicts with a, uh, a new generation of players that, you know, uh, didn't necessarily have, um, uh, he didn't necessarily have a lot in common with. And also, um, you know, his approach seemed a little bit less collaborative and more of a my way or your, the highway thing, which is interesting given that, um, his relationship with Auerbach was very much more of a, a, a collaborative um, process and you know, with kind of mutual respect. And Russell seemed to have a hard time um, kind of finding his way as a coach. Mm-hmm. It's true. Uh, it's, first of all, it's important to remember that he was a coach before that, right? When he was coach, when he was a player yeah. coach of the Celtics for his last three seasons. Yeah, absolutely. That's sort of one of the least celebrated aspects of Russell's incredible career and, and one that doesn't get enough credit you know he won two NBA championships as a player coach uh and years when no one expected the celtics to win the championship in either of those years in 68 or 69 uh but in many ways when he coached the celtics it was almost like in the way that a really on top of things captain uh would uh would organize a team right he had he had players around him who he trusted and and they all knew the plays and it was simply sort of keeping the Celtic way going. Um, and there were times when he had to exert discipline, times when he had to make adjustments, and he got better at that over his three years. He, um, he was celebrated for a lot of his coaching moves uh, in the years they won the titles. Uh, but when he came to the Supersonics, as you mentioned, there was you know sort of a distance between him and the more modern player, uh, the younger generation, uh, more predominantly African-American, ironically. Uh, but there's a lot more money in the sport because of the rivalry with the ABA and television contracts. Uh, there's a lot more sense of entitlement among the players, a lot less sense of a cooperative culture that he grew out of. And so he gets very alienated from the players. So it's this really sort of ambivalent legacy in terms of what he leaves in Seattle. Because, like, as you mentioned, you know, they had some decent teams under Lenny Wilkins. When Lenny Wilkins was a star and player coach at the beginning of the decade, and then they just collapsed and they were terrible. Sam Shulman was an owner who just kept meddling and, uh, and bought all these high-priced players who didn't pan out. So Russell, when he joins the team, when he uh, starts the team, he first of all he breaks another barrier. He's the first coach slash general man, first black coach and general manager, uh, and the first really African American with kind of absolute power over a team. Uh, there have been other general managers, but he's the first to really exert that sort of dictatorial control of the team. But doesn't relate to the players in the same way that he related to his fellow Celtics, as you as you mentioned. Uh, he's able to bring certain aspects of that Celtics tradition in terms of defense, in terms of hustle terms of a, a team first approach that gets them into the playoffs for two years uh his second and third years as coach but he never is able to really 
connect to the players, um, and he's never able. He doesn't seem to really respect. Them. Um, so the team never really advances from there. Uh, and he has such a disdain for public relations that he that he doesn't earn any goodwill among the citizens of Seattle. Right? They thought of him as a savior when he arrived, uh, and they feel more alienated from him by his last few years. And he doesn't really. Uh, he gets so discouraged with the players, he ceases to, to try to really teach them. He doesn't invest as much time in coaching um, as some of his contemporaries. So by his last year, it's, a, it's really kind of a disaster. And it's a, almost a mutual – he gets fired, but it's kind of a mutual parting of the ways. Sure, sure. Yeah, and you know, I think one thing that illustrates kind of the, um, you know, the initial promise and then later uh, the – reality is his relationship with Spencer Haywood, who at first he tries to really, you know, mentor and, um, you know, build into, you know, kind of in his mold to a certain extent. Um, And, uh, you know, Haywood was, uh, you know, already a celebrated um, player, but he had had done really well for for a year in the ABA and then then came to Seattle. And um, like I said, Seattle had struggled and he was high priced, but still was, you know, the, the talent was obviously seen. But, you know, soon teammates sort of teased that uh, that Haywood was uh, a coach's pet, and then and Haywood sort of resented how Russell embarrassed the other players, and uh, you know lamented that they were once so close. And then uh, as Russell sort of pulled away and started to really be critical of him, and eventually trade him away, he said he felt like it was being rejected by your father. Right, right. There was sort of very much a mentor uh, relationship there that fell apart. Um, and again, part of it is this generational divide. Uh, part of it is Haywood's sort of expectations that he wants to sort of, you know, that he comes from a culture that is sort of rooted more in black power rather than the earlier civil rights movement. Uh, and um, um, and that, so there's a difficulty connecting in that way. There's a yeah. difficulty just in terms of his sense of entitlement. Uh, and yeah, I think, you know, once Russell pulls away, I think you stated it very well, once Russell pulls away, Haywood feels betrayed. Uh, and that further distances them and hurts the team, right? Because Haywood was the, by far the biggest talent on the team. One, uh, one great story about uh, the the final practice of Russell's career in uh, mm-hmm. Seattle and, um, and just... Uh, uh, deciding to put on some sneakers and show his players, um, you know, a little bit of what Russell had left. Can you can you uh, share that story? Sure. So it's the, it's the end of his last season. I think it's, it's seventy seven is his last season, and uh, he's heard, like he's probably heard some grumbling. The play, like he's totally lost the players, and they're in the midst of the losing streak and the, and the end of the thing. But it's their last walkthrough practice before their last game, uh, and things. You know, everybody's just going to go their separate ways after that last game. And Russell's wearing jeans and sneakers that day. Uh, and just, just toward the end of practice, just, you know, some of the players, like, try to shoot on me, and he blocks a shot. And then another player, like, tries to drive into him and fade away, and he blocks a shot. And then Dennis Johnson, who has, you know, outstanding leaving ability, tries to sky over him, and he, and he blocks a shot. And then he just kind of walks off the court cackling. <laughs> and the players are like, you know, th- there have been some talk in the past few days, that like, oh, Russell's an old man, and he, and he, he could never play anymore, and he, and he probably overheard something like that. But he never, like, articulates anything. He never says anything about it. It's just it, that sort of was a perfect metaphor for Russell's life with the, with the Sonics. Like, he, he, he bore such promise for that team, and he, and he changed it in particular ways. But it never it, – it, he could never just embrace the role of coach and figure out a way to really transmit his larger message. Um, but he had this strong sense of personal satisfaction and respect that was so key to him. And um, looking at his stint with the Kings in the uh, in the late '80s, unfortunately, not much positive for him to uh, take there. He was he was a coach and GM for a short time, and um, 
really, I guess, drafting Purvis Ellison was the um, is probably the main thing that he's remembered for, which is uh, <laughs> obviously not great there. And uh, I mean, the, the Kings had just moved to Sacramento a couple of seasons before. They were trying to establish them, you know, kind of a foothold there and, and to get some attention. Unfortunately, it was a uh, um, one of a series of bad moves for the Kings until they you know started to put it together a little bit in the uh, in the late nineties, but. Um, uh, definitely not not a strong. Uh, kind of got out of the NBA uh, after that, and really, yeah, was sort of isolated from um, the NBA and from uh, you, you, kind of in the '90s was not heard from much. Was kind of mm-hmm. um, uh, you eventually would he would write another book and um, Russell rules and um, would sort of um, kind of come back and start to um um would get more involved again and would uh and would start to sort of uh, some of the old wounds um with Boston and um would, would kind of start to heal but you know he he pulled back for a while and it wasn't until he was after Walt Chamberlain died that he kind of um started to uh reemerge in the public eye and start to kind of um get a little bit more of a um you know, with age, um, his reputation, you know, um, would change a little bit and he would start to kind of, um, be okay with some of the, you know, um, reaching out to fans and things that, you know, he had, uh, previously uh, not been comfortable with. Yeah. I think, and there's a huge irony there in that basically by the mid to late 1990s, uh, Russell realized, you know, Russell's path back into public recognition is being exactly what he'd resisted for so long, and that it's becoming a commodity. Um, he, um, His daughter is saying, look, we're hitting the year 2000 soon, and people are going to be talking about the greatest NBA players, and people have forgotten about you, right? They forgot, they've forgotten just how great you were, outside of like the, of the Bob Bryans of the world, right? The sort of the, the people with that sense of basketball history. Uh, there wasn't this sort of rich sense of, of Russell, uh, of what Russell had meant to the NBA, uh, and just how great he was, 11 NBA titles in 13 seasons, nothing else. Um, but you know, one of the ways is he signs autographs, right? He, and he's charging uh, money for autographs. Uh, you mentioned the book Russell Rules. Uh, his first two books, uh, the first is Go Out for Glory. It's written in 1960, published in 66. And that's sort of like a, an early, you know, there's no other text like it by a black athlete uh, prior to that time in terms of what it expresses, in terms of the uh, ideas it expresses that critique uh, white America. And then uh, we talked earlier about Second Wind, that beautiful memoir published in 1980 which is just sort of a really thoughtful reflection on the meaning of sports and, and his personal journey. But Russell Rules is essentially, or uh, it was written like a business handbook. Like, how can we take the lessons from the Celtics and apply them to running a successful business? And he doesn't write that book for the sales of that book. When you write a business handbook like that and you're a celebrity, you're writing that so that corporations want you to come talk to them for $50,000, $75,000 a pop. Um, so he's, you know, he's, and I'm, I'm not begrudging that, obviously, Russell is going to make he deserves to make up money however he wants to make money. Uh, but it is a very different kind of book, and it speaks to now you know, that Russell is again celebrated and you win the Bill Russell Award if you're the finals MVP. That happens because he enters into this acceptance of himself as a commodity in his later age. Yeah, 
um yeah that, that that is the interesting irony of uh his life but it, but it's nice to see it, it's nice to see him like around the nba finals and you know uh always seems to generally seems to be happy to be there and and it's it's nice to get for him to kind of get that limelight uh you know every year they give the finals mvp and mm-hmm. things like that i mean um you know in fact it, this morning you just threw out the first pitch at fenway park along with david ortiz and bobby orr and ty law uh so yeah he's you know he's, he's come to embrace that and and i think it's really it's good for the people of boston uh in particular to see bill russell embracing the city in that way and to, and to feel like a, a sense of healing from the past but it, uh, it can also obscure just how controversial bill russell was in the 1960s yeah absolutely i mean it, it, it was interesting discussing the the um the russell chamberlain rivalry it's interesting that now russell is kind of the um you know he he's sort of be, become a um if you're going to pick a side between Wilt and um, and Russell, Russell's kind of like the, you know, he, he's the the teamwork over individual glory, and is sort of a kind of an argument for a a, a style of game that would have been you you, you kind of like been the um, um, trying to trying to think of how to phrase it. Sorry, um, it, it's just interesting because like he Russell is now like kind of a. A, a safe choice in that argument of more like the the, the style mm-hmm. of team play versus mm-hmm. you know individual selfishness that you know Wilt is somehow sometimes cast and I don't think those either of those are necessarily fair but it's just it's interesting how the perception of Russell has changed so much and obviously part of that was from his you know his career success and just the you know the inarguable awesomeness of the Celtics and some of that mm-hmm. of course is the passage of time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. Um... And Russell, like you say, has become sort of a more ident- uh, a choice that the regular fan. You know, ironically, he's become sort of the choice of the common man. Like you or me, like we weren't dominant athletes in our, our entire lives. It's tough for us to relate to Will Chamberlain. Weirdly, we can relate more to Bill Russell because we think if we played pro basketball, we would try to make our teammates better and do everything we could to win titles, right? Yeah, um, right. Exactly. So it's much tougher for us to relate to the transcendence of, of Will Chamberlain, right? Yeah. Who was just something beyond a scale that we can imagine almost in, yes. terms, of, in terms of what he represented in, in the 50s. And 60s. Even the Russell, um, obviously. Right? So he's yeah. become just something, you know, that is, uh, uh, we can't connect to, but interestingly with the rivalry stuff, you know, um, in writing about Russell and Chamberlain for that matter, you know, documenting it, the rivalry was, it was a manufactured rivalry, but it was real at the time in the sense that people bought into it, right? Like there were the questions about what made you a great basketball player were engaged in the 1960s. By Russell and Chamber, by by how people read Russell and Chamberlain, uh, and how sports writers talked about him in terms of how their fellow players talked about him. Um, someone like Jerry West would say again and again, like you know, for one game, I would choose Russell, even after he played with Bill. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe because he played with Bill, you know. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely a a thing that fueled the popularity of the NBA and provided it, you know, with uh, you know the the great story of the 1960s really is you know the main the i think the most key one is is russ versus wilton the you know the and they talked about how it motivated them as well um and how um you know wilt gave um russell a uh, uh they, they challenged each other in such uh, you know amazing ways and mm-hmm. and also you know they obviously had, had a great friendship as well that um uh that the later unfortunately um they um they they split apart but um but toward the end of Will's life fortunately they did um reconnect and um and and, and rekindle their friendship before 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 Will passed away um 
Uh, is there anything else that um, you'd like to talk about? Um, I really enjoyed talking uh, to you about this. It's been a while since I've talked about Bill Russell, as I'm a few years removed from that book now, but it's, uh, it was a real uh, joy for me to, to step back into it. Um, I love reading and, and uh, talking about basketball history. So thank you very much. Oh, you're so welcome. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show again. Thank you for writing such a uh, outstanding book. And I really do recommend anyone who is listening to this, if you have not checked it out, it is absolutely worth your while. It is just a, a wonderful look at our – at Russell and his importance and of you know, and, and the basketball uh, climate of the time. It's just uh, some, some great stuff. So we greatly appreciate it. Well, thanks so much, Jason. All right. And everyone can uh, check us out at uh, harborparoxysm.com. Uh, you can find us on iTunes or Stitcher by searching over and back. We would greatly appreciate a, a rating and review. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. So until next time, uh, thanks for listening. I'll be back again soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.